True Tales Live on PPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of Stories with Heart at the West End Studio Theatre in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, hey, what's your story? I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when you come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. Which is a, you know, a good listen. The first L is listening. And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. But listening and learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, need to tell to somebody you love. And now is the time to do it. Go home and tell stories. And tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham, speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 years old about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98, here in New Hampshire. Thanks to everyone watching and listening, and especially to our studio audience. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell first-person experience stories 
stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect. While we do encourage the development of storytelling skills, we have monthly workshops and other support to our tellers, this is in no way a competition where we have no ranking, no scoring, no judging at all. We truly believe that stories shared from our heart uplift and inspire us and bind us all together, and that's why we are here, and we think that's probably why you're here too. So our theme for tonight's show is, What Was I Thinking? It's a good one, right? We're going to hear what five people think now. Um, coming up, we're going to have Matt Krug, Dane Peters, Martha Reed Johnson, Tina Charpentier, and Andy Davis. They each have a 10-minute limit for their story, and you'll get to hear a little about them before they, they come on with Pat Spaulding's introductions. After the storytelling, stay tuned for an interview of one of tonight's tellers. But first, for the stories. Let's welcome Pat up here to introduce our first teller. Hi, everybody. Ooh, good to see you all. Um, first up, we have a new teller to True Tales Live. His name is Matt Krug. He's an elementary school teacher and one of Freiburg, Maine's newest residents. He enjoys pedaling a bike, hiking, a good Red Sox game, and being a friend of Andy Davis. <laughs> <laughs> one of our regulars will be telling tonight at the end of the show. About the story that Matt will tell, he says... Sometimes you need to end up in a ridiculous situation to help yourself see just how foolish you've been. Who can identify with that? He'll tell us more about that in his story, The Two-Minute Warning. Come on up, Matt. When I was in my late 20s, I was living in California, had little money, little common sense, and no health insurance. What I did have was a case of internal parasites, which I self-diagnosed as a food intolerance. Now, these parasites would be in me, and I wouldn't notice them at all for anywhere from two to ten weeks. And then, out of the blue, out of, seemingly out of nowhere, I'd get this kind of gurgly, uncomfortable feeling which I soon learned to recognize as my two-minute warning, because it meant I had two minutes to get to the bathroom, because something very exciting was about to happen. Now, I figured it was a food intolerance, so I went on the aptly named elimination diet. I, uh, I, I stopped figuring out, well, I could eliminate spicy food, but two to ten weeks later, the two-minute warning with all the follow-up activities. And I say, all right, wasn't spicy food. Must be tomatoes or fish or beans or, and it went on and on and on, but every two to ten weeks, the two-minute warning. This probably would still be going on if it hadn't been for the incident in Fresno. Now, one Sunday afternoon, I'm driving 
south from my, my journeys north in California, and my car breaks down in Fresno, California. So I get towed. I get towed to this closed-down section of Fresno because it's, it's Sunday afternoon. And the tow truck dry, guy drives my, uh, the, parks my car in this holding compound. It's right behind the fix-it shop, which is closed. And the holding compound is this little parking lot, and it's surrounded by a chain-link fence that has razor wire around the top. So I call my buddy Larry, and I convince him that, yes, he does want to drive an hour and a half to pick me up and to bring me home. And then the tow truck driver leaves me sitting on the front step of the closed-down fix-it shop, and off he drives. And just as he's disappearing around the corner, it's the two-minute warning. So I figured, no problem. This is America. There's got to be a donut shop or a fast food store nearby. So I go out to the road, and I, and I look up the road, and I look down the road. But there's no, no fast food places, no donut shops, no open buildings or businesses at all. And my two minutes is starting to tick away. So I run up to the corner, and I look left, and I look right. No open shops. Oh, there's plenty of agricultural supply stores that are closed. There's a, an automotive shop that's closed. And my two minutes is ticking away. So I run, run down the street, look left, right in the next corner. Same thing. My two minutes is ticking away. So I figure, well, if I can't find a bathroom, at least I can find like a private spot. So I look around and I figure, well, it's got to be like maybe go behind a building. But I look and all the buildings, all the buildings have, have uh, either a gate or a fence or more of that fun razor wire. So that opportunity is gone. And my two minutes, it's ticking, ticking away. But not to panic, I figure, well, there's got to be something around here in which I can get behind. I mean, maybe a car. But all the cars that are around are either slowly driving up and down the street every few minutes or in the, the, holding, the holding place there. So I'm figuring, wow, just get behind maybe some trees. I'm a na nature guy. I like a good hike. And there are five trees that I can see. <laughs> and they are about as big around as my arm. And they are growing be between the sidewalk and the road. <laughs> offering me really no protection from these viewers in the cars that like to drive by occasionally. At this point, I'm thinking, because my time, it's tick, 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 ticking away, I'm thinking, well, I'm up for anything at this point. And I look across the street, and there's a dumpster there. And I say, well, a dumpster's like a car. You can get behind a car, you can get behind a dumpster. So I run around to the dumpster, and I try to get behind the dumpster. But it is parked, or, or, or you park a dumpster or, or, or a set, in such a way that it's at an angle. So no matter which side of the dumpster I go behind, I'm still, well, I'd say exposed to the street. Uh, and my time, it's tick, tick, ticking away. It's almost completely ticked away. So my only choice was right in front of me. I opened the dumpster. As dumpsters go, this seemed like a relatively clean dumpster. 
California has great recycling laws, and this apparently was a paper recycling dumpster because it had like, like five inches of nice paper on the bottom. It was rather like a, a large hamster cage. <laughs> so over the edge I go into the dumpster, squatting down behind, behind the, you know, in the dumpster there, I do my business, and there with my pants at my ankles, feeling so proud of myself because I have outsmarted this situation pretty well. And then I hear a car pull up and it parks beside the dumpster. Now I know it's not my buddy Larry because it's just been over a little bit over two minutes since I've called him. And I can smell cigarette smoke coming along. And I think to myself, why would somebody in the closed down part of this town park beside a dumpster? Well, obviously they want to throw something out, like maybe cigarettes. You know, or, or, or maybe they're driving around and drinking and they want to throw their bottles into this dumpster where I am in a rather... Uh, not a very great situation right now. And then I thought, well, it's a closed-down part of town, so maybe they have something illegal that they want to throw into the dumpster. Maybe it's a body. <laughs> and, I, and I wonder, you know, would they notice me in the dumpster in my situation as they hoist the body over the side? And this is all going through my mind, when, as mysteriously as this car appeared, it drives off. Well, the very next week, I went to the doctor. And my doctor, he, he diagnosed me not with a food intolerance, but with, with, with internal parasites. And he gave me this great big, huge, the biggest pill I've ever seen to take once a day for 30 days and it would poison everything out of my system. And during this time I'm taking this pill, it, I'm feeling nausea and a headache and achy because it's poisoning me too. And I begin to think, oh, this pill is worse than the parasites themselves. But then I take my mind back to that dumpster. <laughs> and I think, no... You have to take these pills, because after 30 days, this chapter of my life will be closed, and nobody will ever have to know about it. <laughs> well, thanks, uh, Matt, for sharing what we all now don't know. We were, I was scanning the dumpsters as I walked through town. You have very nice dumpsters. <laughs> yeah, it's a class joint around here. Okay. We do have good dumpsters. <laughs> Next up, Dane Peters. He's a longtime lover of parenting, teaching, leadership, and writing. Lives with his wife, Chris, in Greenland, New Hampshire. Dane has written over 100 articles and 30 different publications. He's the author of two books, and although now officially retired, he still consults with schools throughout the U.S. and China. Yeah, why not? 
Uh, you can visit his long-running blog at Dane's Education Blog. Dane volunteers in several community organizations, is the vice president of Seacoast Repertory Theater and a member of Senior Repertory Theater, which is an acting troupe for senior citizens. All of his life, Dane has listened to, learned about, and loved classical music. But he never really appreciated the visual arts until much later in life when he saw the paintings of Van Gogh through brand new eyes. His story's title is, Me? Enjoy Vincent? No way. Yes way, come on up. <laughs> Dane, tell us more. To begin, I would like to borrow three L's from Catherine Tucker Wyndham. It's just beautiful. I love her portrayal of the four L's. And the three L's are, I'll start with, listen. I always, I grew up with classical music. And I loved listening to classical music. It just turned me on. This is in the 60s and the 70s when there was all kinds. It was a music revolution, a rock and roll. But I loved classical music. And what I loved so much about it was the fact that the pieces I liked, it would paint pictures in my mind. So for example, Tchaikovsky's Overture of 1812, or Saint-Saëns' uh, The Carnival of the Animals, or The Moldau by Smetna, about the river that goes through Prague, and you can literally see that river. And then there's always um, uh, pictures at an exhibition um, by Mazorsky. Mazorsky, thank you. And, uh, and that was it. You know, I, I just, I, I really got into listening to music. But then, most of my life has been devoted to learning. And yet, I didn't open my mind to those visual arts. And yet, still, writing and being an educator was all, is all about learning. And I was devoting my life to it. But at the same time, I didn't open the door. What, what was I thinking? Well, eventually, the way I loved classical music, I was going to start learning about uh, art. And it started about three years ago when my wife and I went to Paris and we were on a river cruise and we stopped. Our first stop was Giverny, which is where Monet's home was. And we went there and we saw his pictures were there, but then we walked in his backyard where there were ponds and lily pads and said, well, I, I just saw that inside. That's where, that's where he gets the ideas from. And I just started getting turned on to that. Well, then the next thing that happened was this past December, someone said to me, hey, Dane, have you ever seen the movie Loving Vincent? I said, no, no, no. She said, oh, you've got to see it. It's fabulous. Well, I sat down and I started watching it. And this was made up of by 100 artists who painted 65,000 frames. So it was like an animated movie, but it was all in Van Gogh-esque. It was all about the way he painted. And when the credits were rolling at the end, I was hearing a song. And it was Starry Night by Don McLean. If you remember 1971, it was a real famous song. 
If you don't know it, let me... Starry, starry night, paint your palette blue and gray. Look out on the sunny day. And I just said, really, that starry, starry night is his song? And then I find out that's not the name of the song. The name of the song is Vincent. And if you get a chance, go on YouTube and just type it in and get the one where you're listening to the song, but it's showing the lyrics. And it's all about Van Gogh. And it's just fabulous. Oh, and by the way, uh, those of you who might be seeing this for the first time via YouTube, uh, I had to tell everybody to stop. They they were giving, the audience was giving me a standing ovation for the singing. But I just said, (laughs) no, no, no. no, no." (laughs) So I think you'll... (laughs) But... So the next thing that happened was, so I, I'm now really turned on to this art thing. And I pick up a book, I go to the library, and the librarian says, because I was telling him, you know, I saw this movie, it was fabulous. Well, have you ever read the book Vincent and Theo? Theo was Vincent van Gogh's brother. And they communicated with each other via letters. Really, really explicit. And they helped one another, and especially Theo was helping Vincent because Vincent was a troubled individual. You know, he had depression very, very badly throughout his lifetime. But nevertheless, it didn't get in the way of his artistry and his talent. And so I put the book down, and you know, this this is the same Vincent who cut off his left ear. He is the one who committed suicide. That's how he ended his life. Well, the next thing I find out is my wife and I decide in April, hey, why don't we go to Amsterdam? Amsterdam's a fabulous place. And we decided, and we went to Amsterdam. And the first place we go to is the Rijk Museum. If you're familiar with the Rijk Museum, it's the museum that has all the classics. It has a few Van Goghs, Van Goghs, but it ha- also has the classics like Vermeer and Rembrandt. And I got in there, and I'm looking at these classical pictures, and they could be photographs, but I know they're not photographs, they're paintings. And I could get like a foot away from the picture, and I wanted to touch it, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't dare. But they were so precise. And then all of a sudden, this guy Monet comes along, the mid-1800s, and he starts slopping paint all around, big gobs of paint, and people are turned on. And that's the Impressionist era that starts with this goopiness. And it's just beautiful. And Van Gogh picks up on that and he starts doing the same thing well during his lifetime of 37 years he only painted in the last 10 years of his life and in those 10 years he produced 2100 works of art and I can't get enough of them now so I have learned I am now loving fine arts through Vincent. He's the guy who has turned me on. And at the same time, it was very sad because in the last 70 days of his life, he did 75 paintings, and many of them were in the asylum. And during his life, he did not sell. He only sold one painting, and it was his brother Theo and Theo's wife, Joanna, who 
put it out there. And one of the last paintings he did by, with Dr. Gaucher, Gaucher, who was helping him through his depression and insanity, if you will, recently in 1991, sold for $25 million. And in today's dollars, that would be about $125 million. And his most famous painting, The Starry Night, it's not even in the Van Gogh Museum, which we saw and just went through, and my wife had to drag me out. Come on, Dane, enough. We've seen it. But Starry Night is in the uh, Metropolitan Museum of, of Art in uh, New York City. And if you ever get a chance, see it. You can see it right here. You don't have to go to Amsterdam. All in all, um, at now at the age of 70, I can say that I listen to my classical music and I look at the fine arts and I can't get enough of it. Just last week, we were at the Cloisters in Fort Tryon Park in upper Manhattan. And there I was seeing these tapestries that were done in the 12, 1300s, and they're all tapestries, and I'm looking at them and I'm saying, they can't be. I mean, they're just one step prior to uh, what was happening with the master artists with their very precise paintings. And so I learned to love this and take this with me. At the same time, I'm always looking for a good laugh, that 4L. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Dane. Next up we have Martha Reed Johnson. She grew up in Georgetown, Mass, and after 35 years um, living south of the Mason-Dixon line, has finally returned home. In addition to being caretaker for her 85-year-old mother and the 200-year-old family home, she is a counselor, behavior specialist, and storyteller working in public education. Martha has spent years as a middle school counselor and often when listening to her students wants to ask them the question, what were you thinking? <laughs> but then she remembers her own 16th birthday and knows exactly how the teenage brain simply does not think. She'll give us a little more insight into her personal knowledge of that fact in her story, skinny dipping cops and clergy. <laughs> All right, put those together for us, Martha. <laughs> yes, the teenage brain, it simply does not work. <laughs> so the fall of 1980, I was 16, in Massachusetts, it was an unusually warm, beautiful fall day. And I was upstairs in my bedroom reading Anne of Green Gables, Lost in the World of Prince Edward Island, when BAM! The bedroom door opened and my two best friends, Tom and Bob, walked in. Tom picked up my feet and Bob grabbed my hands and they carried me out of my room, down the stairs, and we were heading for the back door. We went through the kitchen, and my mother was seated at the table, and she was folding a very large stack of napkins. And she barely looked up, and she just said, be safe, be smart, make good choices, <laughs> as Tom and Bob carried me out of the house. <laughs> 
they put me in the back seat of the car and off we went. And we arrived at Plum Island Beach. Parked the car, it was a beautiful night. We got out and walked across the dunes and started walking down the beach, the water lapping at our feet, watching the sunset over the dunes. And then the sky got dark and the stars began to twinkle. It was spectacular. We'd walked for some time and finally we decided we'd best head home. And we turned around heading back to the parking lot. And the moon was rising over the water and we were just enjoying the night. And suddenly, Bob just stopped, and he stripped off his clothes, and he ran for the water and dove in, <laughs> popped up and yelled, come on in! And I was thinking, no way. And Tom stripped off his clothes, dumped him in the sand, and ran in the water. And they were both yelling at me, Martha, come on in! And I was thinking, absolutely not as my clothes were dropping to the sand and my feet were running for the first wave and I dove in and when my head popped up my body was frozen from the neck down because this is New England you all understand this the water was freezing but as soon as I looked up at those stars and the moon rising and just began to float in the water it felt wonderful and we had a blast body surfing and splashing in the waves and then there comes a place where your body is suddenly aware of just how cold you are and every nerve ending seems to have come to life. And I yelled, we've got to get out, I'm freezing. So Tom and Bob got out of the water and I was still kind of bobbing in the waves as they were pacing back and forth on the shore. And I said, go to the car, I'll meet you there. And they continued to pace. And then Tom turned and he yelled, we can't find our clothes. I said, look harder. But they called back to me, we're going to the car. And as I continued to bob in the waves, I watched those two moons crossing over the dunes toward the parking lot. And I had to get out. And I got up to the shore and I started pacing and looking. And while we were playing in the water, the tide had come in and the clothes had gone out. And so I began to look for something, just anything, to cover myself. And seashells, no, that wasn't going to do. And, and then I found a pile of seaweed, and I thought, this will work. And I took out these long strips, and I kind of made myself a seaweed thong and tied it off and held on. And then I grabbed something around my bus and hung on in real tight. I hung on to that seaweed as I made my way across the dunes into the car. I jumped in the back seat. I said, get me home right now. And Tom and Bob buckled their seatbelts, and Tom drove on home. And I, from the back seat, kept saying, get me home faster. So Tom drove faster. <laughs> and a little faster. And we came to our town, you know one of those little towns, the ones where everybody knows your name, and there's just that four crossways. And Tom drove fast right through that intersection, and I was... There was nobody around. We made it through the intersection. Except there was the town police car sitting on the corner where he always sat. And then the blue lights came on and the police car pulled in behind us. And Tom pulled over and all I could think was, please don't let this be Officer Dowdy. He was our friend Kathy's father. I did not want him to see me like this, and so I ducked real low in the back seat and watched as the police car door opened up and Officer Dowdy strolled on up to the car. 
He shined the flashlight in at Tom and Bob and saw them wearing nothing but their seatbelts. <laughs> and said, Tom, what are you doing? Tom said, we're taking Martha home. <laughs> and the flashlight went to the back seat of the car. And I was hanging on to my seaweed thong and my seaweed cups. I said, we went skinny dipping at Plum Island and the tide came in and the clothes went out. And this was the best I could do. And I just want to go home, Officer Dowdy, please. And he shined the flashlight back at Tom and said, you're taking her home like that? Tom said, yeah. And then Officer Daddy got this smirk on his face. He knew my mother, the Reverend Faith Johnson. And he looked at Tom, looked at me, and he said, I'll just follow. This ought to be good. (laughs) And he got back in his police car. And so Tom started up, and we headed down Main Street, took that right on Elm Street. And as we were getting close to my house, I realized there were a lot of cars parked on the street in front. And there were a lot of cars in the driveway. And as we pulled into the back of the driveway, I realized that the lights to the living room were on, and there were all these heads bombing around in the living room. And then I remembered. This was the night that the Northeast Clergy Association was meeting at my mother's house. She was presenting her brand new sex education curriculum to be delivered to teenagers throughout New England. And I thought, how am I going to get in the house? And Officer Dowdy walked on past me, heading up to the driveway up towards the house, and I opened up the door. I said, Officer Dowdy, that's a house full of clergy. you got to help me. I said, go to the back. Just distract my dad. And he went up to the kitchen door, and I decided to go in the basement bulkhead. And so hanging on to my seaweed thong and seaweed cups there, I got down low, you know, below the windows, and got into the basement hatch, and I crossed the basement up the stairs, and I opened up the basement door just in time to see Officer Dowdy talking to my father in the kitchen. Perfect distraction. I was turning to run upstairs to my bedroom as a procession of clergy came out of the living room right in front of me into the dining room where the dessert spread was and all those napkins. And they all turned around the table and then stared at me just as my mother came out of the living room. And there I was. And she looked at me and she said, What are you doing? I said, We went skinny dipping. She said, In the basement? (laughs) I said, No, Ma, we went to Plum Island and the tide came in and the clothes went out and this was the best I could do. And as if on cue, she looked at me and she said, We? And then Tom and Bob stepped up out of the basement stairs. Tom had found a paint tarp and just threw it over his shoulder. Bob just found a tool belt and snapped it on. And there we stood, and there was this moment of silence. I don't think there was much prayer going on. And then my mother began to laugh. This great big belly shaking, gasping for breath, laughter. And when she finally caught her breath, I heard her say, I love skinny dipping. And she never said, what were you thinking? But 45 years later, my mother said to me, you want to hear my skinny dipping story? I said, oh, yes. She said, you're old enough now. She said, I was 45. It wasn't 45 years later. I'm not that old. I was 45 years old. She decided I was old enough to hear her skinny dipping story. She said, well, 
when you and all your brothers and sisters were little, there was five of us. She said, your dad and I had to escape sometimes. And one day, we put the canoe in the car and we went to Plum Island. And we went canoeing all through the inland waterways and the marshes. And we found a beautiful sandbar and we laid out a picnic. And then we decided to go swimming. And swimming turned into skinny dipping. And then skinny dipping turned into snuggling and some others and the sandbar. And we were enjoying ourselves so much that we didn't realize that there was a sightseeing sky riding plane circling above us <laughs> until we were finished. And we looked up. And there was a smiley face in the sky. <laughs> I love my mother. And neither of us ever ask, what were you thinking? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I like skinny dipping, but I don't have a story quite as exotic as that one. <laughs> oh, there's still time, huh? <laughs> Tina Charpentier is coming up next. She currently makes her home in Dover, New Hampshire, but has lived in the Seacoast area for most of her life. She was, and still is, fascinated by the planes flying out over Pease Air Force Base, which is partly built on land previously owned by her grandmother. In 1982, Tina joined the New Hampshire Air National Guard Communications Unit and spent a total of 21 years with them. Her story is about a hiking adventure she took just for fun in 1992 while serving in the Air Force in Rihad, Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. It seemed like a good idea at the time, until, well, let's hear Tina tell her story. Quite possibly the best beer I ever had. <laughs> Come on up, Tina. So it was when we saw the baboons that we thought this hike for fun maybe wasn't such a good idea after all. <laughs> and we all agreed maybe we should turn back, but even that was easier said than done. I mean, you ever uh, turn around on a mountain and look down and it seems way steeper suddenly than it did on the way up? Yeah. And the gravel ground was so loose and full of shells and stuff, I mean, we could slip at any moment and fall and there could be an avalanche. Well, at that point, Doug panicked. He couldn't even move. He sat down. But we were almost out of water. We'd gone further than we thought, and we really needed to do something. The year was 1992. We were in the Air Force, and we routinely went to a town called El Karj. An hour and a half drive from Riyadh took us uh, along the escarpment, which is a cliff-like structure in the, in the earth that's about 400 miles long and over 1,000 feet high. See, millions of years ago, this area was under the ocean water, and the tectonic plate shifted and tilted up, and the waters poured off over thousands of years. So Riyadh's four hours from any salt water, yet we had shells and coral and shark's teeth and you name it. We were essentially walking on the bottom of the ocean of long ago. So the escarpment, though, had these washouts in it, you know, where the waters had poured off. They're called wadis. They're dry, hard, barren, brown, just rugged. 
And there's ancient volcanic activity evidence everywhere. There, there were like these large lava fields that looked like old abandoned parking lots, you know, where the dust blew across them. I mean, the geography really was interesting, although I don't recommend going to see it. It's not exactly a tourist destination. <laughs> and for us, it was wartime, you know, so it wasn't that welcoming. But in fact, it was even so unwelcoming to women. I mean, I couldn't drive. And uh, another thing I had, uh, government issued a buy-in scarf if I ever went anywhere without my uniform. The abaya is a black gown-like covering. It's not exactly my first clothing of choice. I'm not the gown-wearing type, typically. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, the average temperature, you know, is like 110 every day. And this is black polyester thing. Boy, I'll tell you, combined with the dry air, the static discharge on that thing when I took it off could light up a room. <laughs> and there were so few women stationed there that simple things weren't really thought about, like even just getting a haircut. I mean, <clears throat> so I went to the barber, the guys did it at uh, Escon Village where we lived. He was a Sri Lanka guy. I asked him, do you cut ladies' hair? And he said, yes, yes. But he didn't really speak English. He just said, yes, yes. So I got a really good, I mean, I keep my hair short, but I got one of those really good men's high and tight military haircuts. So not only am I not the gown-wearing type, I actually really look like a guy. But it was okay, you know, it was so hot, it was kind of a good haircut. Anyway, so along that road to cars that we would travel, we could see this one little lone tree at the top. We talked a lot about that tree. We had many conversations, actually, like, I wonder what it's like up there. Are there other trees? There aren't very many down here. I wonder if there's more up there. Is it green up there? Is it different up there? I mean, the top of the escarpment was this mystery for us. So one day, when we had a little bit of time off, we decided to drive out to the escarpment and explore a little bit. So I left my abaya in the vehicle. I mean, I look like a guy. We're in the desert. We're not going to run into many people. I just wore a button-up shirt and jeans, which is what the guys have to wear. So we walked into this huge crack in the face of the escarpment at first. Kind of like in an old Western movie, you know, where there's bad guys at the top poised to, like, ambush the good guys down. <laughs> and we, I keep saying we, my buddies, Chauncey and Doug, they're like polar opposites, you know, when it comes to risk-taking. Chauncey is very daring. Doug is, well, more your Eeyore type, you know. <laughs> I'll kind of just go along, something to do. So there we go, in order, Chauncey goes in this crack, I go along behind him, and Eeyore, you know, kind of pulls up. So, and we didn't get very far. When Chauncey stopped short, there's this big dead snake. I don't know what kind of snake it was, it didn't really matter. Eeyore's going, see, I told you this really wasn't a good idea, there's a sign. <laughs> but Chauncey didn't pay attention to him and kept going. So we go around this dead snake, and we stop again, there's a second dead snake. Now, okay, I'm in between, so I go, I'm kind of with Eeyore on this one, Chauncey. You know, now there's two dead snakes. I'm glad they're not alive, but then maybe there are some alive. And uh, worse yet, something is killing them. I really don't want to run into whatever that is. So Chauncey agreed, and we backed out of there. So we walked along the face of the escarpment. It's a pretty amazing place. And we started to go up one of the wadis. And... Uh, at that point, we get to the, almost the top of the escarpment. I mean, like, almost to the top. And there's this big, humongous boulder in the way, kind of like uh, Wile E. Coyote would use on the road run, right? <laughs> we could get around it just a little bit, but at that point, there's another drop-off cliff, a crack in the earth, and across the crack, 
the baboons, right? This is when we like Eeyore panics, everything goes wrong, and we know we gotta get out of there. We're almost out of water. We really had wandered further than we should have. And, uh, but we can't do something. We gotta do something now. He's panicked. So we decide maybe if we go up, backtrack, we could go down an easier way. So he gathered himself enough, as long as he looked up, we were able to boost <laughs> Chauncey up onto the escarpment. We really were that close. He comes and he looks over and he says, you know, I don't know what we were thinking. It's the same up here. It's flat and brown and there's nothing. <laughs> but good news, there's no baboons on this side of the crack. <laughs> All right, so we get, we get Eeyore up there and they pulled me up pretty easily and we walked back, backtracking only along the edge of the escarpment now. At this point, um, we were pretty tired, you know. It was hot. And we decided that we should try to go down. We tried a couple times, but it kept failing. Like they would either be where it was a waterfall at one time, you know, or a river that dropped off or another cliff. So then we started to walk quietly for quite a while. Our vehicle now looked like a green sugar, right, from where we were. We knew we were going too far. We all were thinking it. We're exhausted. We're tired. We're thirsty. So we finally talked it out. We, we got to go down the next one. No matter what it is, they're all going to be like this. I mean, it's the washouts. So we decided to take that next one, and it was a waterfall. It did have a drop-off. We talked to Eeyore down. Actually, we talked each other down. It was crazy. He was pretty beat up and tattered and a mess. But we were all pretty beat up and tattered and a mess, actually. But at least the sun was going down, so it was a little bit cooler now. The only thing is, we still had to get back to the vehicle. We'd gone quite a ways the other way now. So the Arabs like to come out when it's cooler. So now there's people in the desert, and they come out like in a suburban with a goat, and they cook it, and they have a cookout with their kids and wives and everything. And they'll actually hook a TV up in their suburban and receive our radio TV service, I mean, we didn't get much. Everything was censored, but we did have news and reruns of David Letterman, which I guess were interesting to them. <laughs> but we had to maneuver around some of these picnic areas now just to make it a little more stressful. And there I was without my abaya, right? If we were caught with me being out there without my abaya, somebody could be beaten or worse, right? And I say somebody because they will only talk to the man and we did have an incident like that. While I was over there, there were a couple of pilots together, and the man was beaten and, and locked up, in fact. So we eventually made it back to our vehicle, and Chauncey drove us like crazy out of, to, back to our compound, Escon Village. And we were so happy to get back there. We really wanted a beer, right? <laughs> but, you know, they don't have alcohol in Saudi Arabia. It's a total drag. But we really wanted a beer. So, okay, we did have some non-alcoholic beer. It was an it was a imported Swiss beer called Moosey. We had a few, actually. And, you know, I love beer. I've tried a lot of beer. I keep trying beer. And Moosey, i got to say, is pretty bad beer. But still, under those circumstances, quite possibly the best beer I've ever had. <laughs>
Thank you, Tina. <laughs> I'm thirsty. <laughs> Andy Davis grew up moving from place to place as his father unsuccess unsuccessfully, albeit maybe enthusiastically, <laughs> pursued the American dream. But one thing was constant. His family always lived within five miles of the ocean. Now Andy lives up in the White Mountains where he conducts a summer camp and retreat conference center, the World Fellowship Center. He tells stories whenever he's asked, sometimes even when he's not. And he is glad to be back to the salt air whenever he can get there, which is here tonight. We got salt hair. I, I smelled it as I came in. I hope you did too. If we're lucky, says Andy, we learn somewhere along the way about the need to pick our battles. If we are very lucky, we find out later what the real lesson was. This story is about when Andy realized that he got that lucky. It's titled, A Tale of Two Augusts. Come on up, Andy. Thanks, Pat. Looking back, I'm not sure if the fateful moment was when I called him an asshole or when he stuck his thumbs in the middle of my chest and started pushing me backwards down the hill. But let me back up for a moment. Back in the days when I probably should have been in college and sometimes was, <laughs> my friends and I, along with so many other people our age, would make an annual migration to the coast to work in beach towns for the summer. Our choice was Agunquit, Maine. That charming hamlet perched on three unbroken miles of white sand on the edge of the uncaged Atlantic. Agunquit, then as now, was a haven for all kinds of sea and sun-worshipping humanity. Families, French Canadians, <laughs> French Canadian families, a thriving and long-established gay community, and us, the young people with raging libidos who formed the backbone of the summer workforce. <laughs> Our ringleader was Norm, who was charismatic and slightly abusive of his power. He was the only one who got to have a first name. The rest of us were Davis, Walker, Alvarez, Oh, the women got to have first names, too. But the only one you need to know about was Bobby, who was waitressing at Einstein's restaurant in the center of town and going out with Norm, who treated her like a queen some of the time and like no kind of royalty the rest of the time. Truth be told, all of us guys were kind of in love with Bobby because she was kind and sweet 
and somehow hope against all hope believed that this little band of sunburned heirs to the patriarchy could somehow become better people <laughs> over time. <laughs> she became sort of a, like a den mother for wolves. <laughs> we rented half of a slightly run-down yellow-clabbered house just south of the center of town, which quickly became known for high-volume socializing long into the night, such that we frequently opened the door to distinguished, uninvited guests in blue uniforms. <laughs> we partied every night at the Yellow House, but we liked to branch out a little bit, so we were excited when we heard that there was an after-hours club opening just over the line in York. It was taking advantage of that town's more liberal laws when it came to how late into the night you could serve alcohol. And in a gesture to its northern neighbor, it called itself, Good night, Agunquit. <laughs> we heard that they were doing really good business, that the place was always thronged with other people our age, and they were doing such a good business that they always had a couple of cops on duty to do crowd control. Now, we had a cordially conflictive relationship with our local cops, but these would have been York cops, not Agunquit cops. We didn't know them at all but we decided to check the place out. So one night, we gathered at Bobby's apartment above Einstein's restaurant and pre-functioned a little bit. <laughs> and then when the moment was right, headed down Route 1 on foot to get to Goodnight Agunquit. We were all dressed in our summer clubbing best. I was wearing a button-down Oxford shirt red and white stripes, rather like Dane's shirt, <laughs> over my uh, running shorts and my white tennis shoes, which leaked beach sand wherever I went. <laughs> I had stopped growing my hair. I was trying to grow a mustache, and I raked a razor across my chin maybe once a week. I looked kind of like a preppy gone bad. <laughs> So anyway, we got to the driveway, where, uh, which goes kind of straight up, uh, very steeply, a gravel drive, and then it levels out into the parking area. And we got to the top of the little rise, and Norm and Walker spotted a cop, and they began verbally abusing him. Very, in a very intelligent way. They'd say like, ah, run a cop, where'd you get that badge out of a cereal box? And other smart things like that. <laughs> well, the cop, I was kind of like this, but the cop glowered and growled at us a little bit and let us go on by and we joined the crowd of people outside the door. And there was a kid on a stool carting people as they went in, so a little knot of people would go towards the door, and then the door would open, and the disco lights would flash, and the dance music would pulse up, heightening the anticipation. 
And then finally, we got towards the front, and uh, Norm and Bobby were carded, and they went by, and the door opened again, the light splashed, the music pulsed out. Then Walker and Alvarez got carded, and the door opened, and they went in, and it was my turn. I was 21. <laughs> But I realized that I must have left my ID back at Bobby's apartment or something. The kid at the door says, sorry, man, without an ID, can't let you in. And I said I understood, and I turned to go, and the cop with whom Norm and Walker had had words came running up and said, yeah, if you don't have an ID, get the hell out of here. So I called him the aforementioned name of the puckered hidden body part and brushed by him. <laughs> and I felt a beefy hand on my shoulder and he spun me around and started pushing me backwards. And a grenade of rage went off in my head. How dare he touch me? And without any further thought, I realized that my right fist was connecting with his chin. And then I remember very clearly what I thought. Oh my God, what have I done? I'm going to die. And I ducked under his flailing arms and grabbed him around the waist and threw him up against the car. I hadn't thought this through very well. I was kind of making it up as I went along, and it wasn't going in a good direction. So the other cop came up behind me, grabbed me by the hair in the seat of the pants, kind of bounced me over the gravel, threw me in the back of the cruiser. And that was that. A few hours later, Bobby, the patient den mother, bailed me out with some of her boss, Steve Einstein's money. And a few months later, I went to trial, was convicted of simple assault, uh, sentenced to 30 days in jail, all but three suspended, and a year on probation. But the craziest thing about the whole thing was that when I said, but your honor, I'm planning to travel in France. I already have my ticket. He let me fly off to France and do my time when I got back. <laughs> Now, I've told this story a lot. In the beginning, I told it kind of constantly to other young white guys my own age with, without fully developed frontal lobes to show what a badass I was. But at a certain point, I stopped telling it. Maybe because I grew up a little bit. And maybe because I just had other stories to tell. But the years went by, and another August rolled around. And I was standing in a big circle of people with hands joined. It was a vigil in honor of the memory of Michael Brown, the young unarmed black man who had been shot dead the day before for expressing his rage to a police officer. And that day, I told the story again. But this time, it was the story of an unbelievably lucky white kid who was mind-bogglingly oblivious about his own privilege, 
about a white kid who through no virtue of his own, fate and circumstance allowed to grow up, find love, have a daughter, and watch her grow up too. Blind fate and random circumstance. Andy. I've heard that a few times. It's still very moving. Well, thanks to all of tonight's amazing storytellers and to our studio audience. Give yourselves a hand for participating. We love having you here. We can't tell you enough. Coming up next, we will have an interview of Dane Peters, one of tonight's storytellers. But first, I have some information to convey. First of all, our next True Tales Live will be on Tuesday, June 26, um, and it has no specific theme. It's an open theme night, so we're not quite full, I think. So let us know if you have a story. Email us at truetaleslive, the number one, at gmail.com. After that, we are, by the way, taking our summer break. That means no show in July or August. Um, we will be back in September, first with our show here, the 25th, and we also have a True Tales Live on stage performance on the afternoon of September 30th at the West End Studio Theater on Islington Street in Portsmouth, and we'll have more info on that, including how to get tickets soon. If you are interested in telling a story here, but want to try it out first, or even if you feel really good about it, but you're interested in getting a little workshop help, we would love to have you at our workshops. Our next one is on June 5th. They happen on the first Tuesday of most months, not July and August. <laughs> Don't come then. You'll be disappointed. Um, and they're held at PPM TV, 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, 730 to 9, um, free and open to all. You can watch this show on Comcast Channel 98 Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And anytime as video on demand, you go to YouTube and search for PPM TV True Tales Live. Let's say a couple thanks to some folks who do a lot of work for this show. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. Sure. I'm Amy Antonucci, and until our next show, thanks so much for listening and watching and participating, and stay tuned for our storyteller interview. I haven't gotten the signal. <laughs> Do I have the, the 